the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. With comprehensive coverage and insightful analysis built around your teams, The Athletic delivers everything you need on every sports story that matters. Download the app, follow your favorite teams and leagues, and get a personalized feed of ad-free content every single day. For access to all the stories at the heart of the game, visit theathletic.com slash SpotTrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C. Get 40% off your first year subscription today. Happy Monday morning. My name is Mike Gennetti. Plenty of sports to get to, plenty of sports to watch this weekend. And uh, I'm going to pick and choose a few of the, uh, the greatest hits for sure to get to this morning, including, of course... Phil Mickelson's incredible run. Incredible run. I, I don't know how to say it any other way. It was must-see TV. I couldn't leave to even go to the bathroom. It was that kind of TV from 50-year-old Phil Mickelson. Here's your payouts. I put it on Twitter. I'll say it here as well. Mickelson gets just over $2.1 million for that win. Brooks Kepka and Louis Oosthuizen share just over a million dollars each for tying second. And it goes down from there. Four tied at fourth for about 462 k Nine tied for eighth at 263, and six tied at 17th for about 168, 168,000. So I mentioned it today. Brooks Kepka, that putt on 18, you know, difficult putt, 20, 20 plus feet, but that birdie putt misses just a bit, and he he re- removes himself for about 240 thousand dollars in tying with Hazen. So that's how it works out in these majors. It gets. Uh, you know, one shot here or there can really swing your, your your final payout. That's just how it works when you're tying. Just on that, by the way, for those who don't know, if you find slotted payouts for a for a a PGA Championship or a tournament, they'll give you the you know the payouts one, two, three, four, five, six. But in the instance of a tie, so for instance, there was a tie for second with Brooks and Louis. What you do is you take the payout for two, payout for three, and you average them. And those two players get the average of those two payouts. So if there's a nine-way tie, it's the average of those nine payouts. Everybody gets that price. So, you know, the numbers at the end of the day are going to look a, diff- a little different than the slotted payouts based on who ended up where and based, and based on those ties. So just a, a little heads up as to how that works. So career rankings. This puts Phil almost to $95 million in terms of on-course earnings. million. He's largely in second place all time behind Tiger Woods, who's at 120.8. And then Jim Furyk, Dustin Johnson, Vijay Singh. That's your three, four, five. And those two, those three are very, very close. I expect Dustin to pass Jim Furyk in the next couple of weeks here with a couple of, you know, if he makes the cut, (laughs) but he'll be the third place finisher here at the end of the day, but he's got quite a lot of work to do to, to catch Phil. I mean, this Phil Tiger situation, it is, it's hands over heads over here in terms of career earnings. I just don't know that we're going to see it. Um, you know, a major like this gets you $2 million to win. The Masters a little bit more than that. You really have to pile on longevity and major championships to get yourself even close to that $100 million mark. It's just how it works. Now, you know, you can win the FedEx at the end and, and, and bring in that $10 million that Dustin gives you. That's a separate little bonus. You know, that's not part of the PGA earnings. That's just kind of like a separate sponsorship payday. It's a good one, but it doesn't account in terms of what we have here with the PGA on-course tournament earnings. So there's ways to make money, plenty of ways to make money playing golf. There's no question about it. But 
the gap between one and three right now is, and two and three, to be honest, is big and getting bigger because Phil's doing things like this still. So that was quite, a, quite an experience for all of us. And the fan experience, boy, welcome back, fans. Can't say much more about that. Got a little squirrely there for a few minutes, but all the best. That was, that's as good as it gets in terms of sports viewing and sports, sports TV right there. Okay. Not a, way, not a real way to smoothly transition into this, but it's time for me to start talking about Deshaun Watson a little bit because we sort of have some concrete dates and some concrete information out there. Mike Florio has done a really nice job of documenting this, as you might expect, the lawyer slash sports analyst and him. It's, uh, it's getting down to that time now where off-season workouts are, are really happening. You know, the, the Texans have added four quarterbacks, some with, you know, a million plus of guarantees. It's looking like they're setting themselves up for a situation where Deshaun Watson will not be available to them. Here's, here's my two cents into how things are looking. We now know that his deposition's February 22nd, and that's obviously purposeful. That's, that's the court system saying, okay, you have a, have a job to do, and we're going we're gonna to delay this thing until after your job frees you up eventually. So February 22nd, 2022 is the preliminary date on his deposition. And there's certainly plenty to go with this, but with all the accusations, I believe we're over, over 20, well over 20 now, 22 now maybe. That's going to take quite a bit of time. It's going to be a drawn-out process, and rightfully so, as, as due process kind of takes its path. But I, from what it sounds like, none of this is going to happen during the season. You know, you're going to have your reports and updates and hopefully not new cases, but things are going to come out for sure over the, over the coming months here. But it doesn't sound like legally things are going to at least find any kind of grounding until February, until after the season. So what does that mean for his 2021 season football-wise? To me, it's two things. A, things just sort of pause enough to the point of where the NFL says, we can't do anything until the legal process does their thing. So we're just going to let this guy play football. And you know when it, could be, when it becomes time for him to hit the courts, we're going to let that play out and we'll make more distinct decisions at that point. So after February 22nd, up until the time when that, that, that position closes. It's probably not likely. It's probably 45% that that's the case, that he's actually just given the chance to go play football while this is all being worked out behind the scenes. The majority of us all think he's going to hit the commissioner exempt list, which is a paid list. He'd make his $10.5 million. He'd be on the exempt list. He wouldn't count as a roster spot. And the Texans will, will just have to play football without his services. You know, the, the most famous recent one, recent example of this is Adrian Peterson, who was having the issues with the child abuse. Um, Minnesota entered the season with him playing, actually. And they gave him the kind of the, uh, the ability to go around this and play football despite the allegations and the court systems figuring out their ends. They quickly turned. I think there was a big, big push from the Minnesota fans, from NFL fans, and the league basically clamped down and said, "No, no, no, we got it. We've got to get this guy off the field um, because he's he's bringing us the wrong kind of distractions, and rightfully so." So they did end up putting him on the exempt list about week two, September fourteenth of two thousand fourteen, and he became eligible to come off it in mid-November because his court system he, he entered a plea, settled out of it. Went, went, you know, went through the proper channels, was 
from a an exemplist, he was able to come off the exemplist, but the league stepped in and evaluated the process that happened in the courts and said, no, we're going to suspend you actually without pay now for the rest of the season. So the second half of 2014, Peterson did not make his salary. He stayed, he stayed away from the Minnesota facilities, and he was allowed back February 26th, I believe, 2015. So that's just one example of how this can go if the court situation was midseason. That's not the case here with Deshaun. So to me, it's going to be an all or nothing. Either he's going to be allowed to play um, or at least stay off that list and be active, in which case I would imagine Houston would play him. And because there's not a deposition or any kind of formal court process happening midseason, I'm not sure that'd be interrupted too much. I think he'd probably get the chance to play all 18 this year. Um, but I, don't, I just don't think that's likely. You know, With the, the cloud that's hanging over him, it seems like the team slash league won't make the mistake they made with Peterson, which was to try to let him go out there and play through this. And it sounds like, you know, that it's, he's just going to get exempted right out right away. Let's take him off the table until things clean up, obviously as they need to one way or another. And, and then we'll decide from there versus let's not make this a mid season bigger issue than, than it actually is for him and the parties involved. So that'd be my assessment of it. Um, I don't think there's a chance he's traded in the midst of all this. So to me, those conversations are dead. And it's really just all about the list, the exempt list. Like I said, that's it, a paid list. He would make his salary on that list, but would not count against the roster and would likely stay there the entire season leading up to that deposition in February. So just a, a quick update on how that would work at least how we're projecting that to work in other football news, purely speculation, but people close to the Atlanta Falcons now, you know, not just the general public <laughs> are, are saying that this Julio Jones situation is probably as real as it's ever going to be. And I believe it. I, this was something I had predicted with my bubble bubble report back in December, January, and not that I predicted he'd be traded, but he's just one of those guys that from a cap perspective, even though he's still one of the best receivers in football, you know, walking in with a $23 million cap hit on a team that had cap issues in a league that was going down cap wise, all the red flags were there. And, uh, you know, this is a team that struggled the last couple of years, even though the offense has, has been ticking pretty well. I think they can afford, believe it or not, to get by without Julio Jones. I think they have enough depth. I think the draft selection they just made, is even more depth at that position from a, from a pass catching situation for Matt Ryan, you know, may not click week one right out of the gate, but I do think they can go and at least seek the first round pick that they're asking for. And that's certainly what they're asking for. I don't think it's realistic. I think they end up settling for a second round pick and maybe a player. And I think the teams that are being identified in terms of Vegas, right? The Vegas odds on where Julio Jones could land 49ers Colts and the chargers, which all make perfect sense to me are the betting odds right now. Patriots are in there with the Ravens, about 600 plus 600 plus 700. And then the Titans, who definitely need a wide receiver, but I don't think have the ammo that is cap space plus players to get back in return. Um, I don't think they have the ammo, and, and they're in the thousands with, with the Packers, by the way, who, I don't know. That's just not what they do, right? Who's the, who's the dark horse here? Who's the dark horse here? I think the dark horse team is the Arizona Cardinals. 
the Arizona Cardinals have surprised us three times this offseason. And I still don't think they've done enough. I don't think what they have right now is enough. Now, they may be considering just bringing back Larry Fitzgerald if he, you know, obviously, if he wants to come back for one more ride. There's a waiting game with him. It may, it may just be that Arizona says, Larry, we love you. We, we'll have you back in any capacity that you, you want in the front office or the, you know, the marketing department, whatever you want to be, ambassadorship, whatever it's going to be. Um, you know, he's a Cardinal for life. But I think if you can upgrade to Julio Jones with a high pick and maybe, maybe, you know, a, a receiver or something back, an Isabella or some kind of player like that back, I think you have to do it. I think if you want to give back a young receiver that's cap friendly for the Falcons and you want to push and go all in on what you've done with DeAndre Hopkins, with JJ Watt, with a couple of defensive draft picks, I think, I think knowing what they have in Kyler Murray, you know, and the James Conner situation at running back, which if he's healthy could really work out in that offense. This is, this is the all in move. This is the, the next and maybe final all in move that Arizona can make. So they're plus 2,500 right now in Vegas, but they've already surprised us too many times to, for me to be, to have them way down there like this. Now, you know, it, I think the Patriots are the most likely, even though they're fifth on this list, this is the kind of move they make midsummer or mid, you know, late spring, early summer. What, what's our biggest deficiency on this roster? Do we think we have a chance to compete in our division, in our conference? I think all those answers are probably yes right now. And I'd still focus on a legitimate wide receiver one as the, the hole. I think that's right. The defense looks outstanding. I think that's the hole. You know, they've upgraded the tight end position. They've upgraded the quarterback position, we think, in Mac Jones. We don't know if we'll see that week one, but that's a move they, they make. So they're my favorites in terms of these betting odds, but look out for these Cardinals because you just can't have enough weapons for a young quarterback. And this would be experience up on top of experience on top of experience. They don't have a real great tight end. So could you use, you know, a Julio Jones situation in the red zone? Absolutely. Absolutely. If that's his primary role and his job is to catch touchdown passes this year, he's going to sign up for that. Yes. He'd have to restructure. Everybody's gonna have to restructure. But to me, that's the dark horse. Now, what's it going to take? It's going to take, you're going to have to be able to account for 15.3 million just to get him in the door. That's what the actual accounting will look like to acquire him from a cap hit perspective in 2021. You can do whatever you want with the cap hit after you acquire it, but you have to initially acquire the 15.3 million. So there's only a handful of teams that can do that. And by the way, Arizona, in terms of my numbers, about 13.3 to work with. So they're going to have to make some tweaks to make it happen, but that's, that's minimal. That's small stuff. That's peanuts to get it done. So they're right there on that fringe. They're the, they're the team on the outside slightly looking in right now in terms of being able to financially afford him. There's 12 teams above that, that have the means. San Francisco is one of them. The Patriots are one of them. The Chargers are one of them. The Colts are one of them. So you're looking at teams right there who are on these, you know, you know on, at least on the list for Julio Jones, who have the cap means to get it done. And then Arizona's fringe. Baltimore's got work to do. You know, the Raiders who are on this list, they have a ton of work to do cap-wise to make this fit. You know, the Titans have a ton of work to do. They'd have to either send send a big cap back, release a big cap, or make some massive restructures, probably to Tannehill, who carries the highest base salary in football this year. So 
you know, how much work do you want to do to the rest of your roster to bring in a guy like this? That's the question internally these teams have to ask. But um, I just look at Arizona. They're sitting with 13 and a half, knowing that they could get to that point of where they could acquire him. And is that the piece that takes them over the top offensively? I think it's possible. All right, moving along quickly here. I'm going to bring in Scott Allen, and we'll talk about the NBA and NHL teams that were eliminated this weekend and what their offseason looks like, notable free agents, cap situations, draft situations, all that good stuff. Some interesting characters that go with a few of these teams for sure. But first, today's edition of the Track Podcast is presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, dedicated to serving the unique wealth management needs of athletes and top professionals in the sports and entertainment industry. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment strives to bring sports professionals the financial solutions they need, including access to financing to support both prospective NFL and NBA athletes through the draft process. Find out more about Morgan Stanley's pre and post draft loan program at morganstanley.com slash GSE. That's morganstanley.com slash GSE. Okay, joined quickly by Scott. A couple of eliminations this weekend. So let's start with the NBA, Scott, and then we'll get to the NHL as well, because both have some interesting characters to discuss. Indiana, I, I don't know how they did what they did in that first playing round, but that was that's not the Indiana Pacers we saw most of this season. Uh, who is this team? Look, not, notable free agents, you know, Doug McDermott, pretty good shooter. What does this team do? They've locked in their core. They've locked in Melvin Brogdon. They've locked in uh, Sabonis, you know, nice pieces. Just seems like a team without an identity. I don't know how they're going to attract players. There is a there is a path for them to get to some open cap space if they renounce pretty much everything, you know, outside of the core. But what are your thoughts here about this Indiana Pacers team going forward? Because you know they're not in rebuild mode. They're not in rebuild mode, but we've also seen and heard like Miles Turner could be on the trade block, you know, TJ Warren, potentially Jeremy Lamb, you know, we've, we've heard rumblings over the last year or so of, you know, potential trade candidates. So is that, you think what's going to happen? Like a, like secondary trades? Yeah, I I do think so. Their core is definitely around Sabonis. Brogdon is definitely their point guard moving forward. And then, you know, they had a little bit of, uh, of a picture of Levert yeah. after having all the, the injury stuff after that trade. Uh, this is a team that's probably going to have to make trades to upgrade their roster because they are not a free agent destination, yeah. which is why they've made the moves that they have in the past. You know, they, they acquired Sabonis from Oklahoma city. They, it, in that Paul George trade, uh, they acquired, Malcolm Brogdon in a sign and trade from Milwaukee. So this this is a franchise that is going to have to make trades to upgrade their roster and go through the draft. But, you know, having made it as far as they did, their draft position is not going to be in that top 10 to get a premier player. So they're going to have to make a trade one way or another to upgrade the roster. Is Miles Turner still a name? I mean, is that a name that the contenders are still going to be looking at this offseason if he is truly on the trade block, or is he, his uh, polish kind of worn a little bit? No, I think he's definitely going to be someone that teams look at, especially if they need one more piece or in that one piece is a, a big man. I think he is a guy that could be sought after. Mm. All right, so maybe sellers more than buyers this offseason. The 
Golden State Warriors. We've talked about this a lot, but it's here officially. Their offseason is here. Kelly Oubre, Kent Bazemore are the notable free agents. Oubre kind of the bigger one because of what it took to get him here. Um, the expiring contract of Steph, not this year, one more year. So he's one year, 46 million right now, which sounds incredible to say out loud. You know, this isn't going to be a cap space team. I mean, they're, they're basically negative 50 in terms of practicality. Yep. Is, you know, the draft, the draft pick is probably the most interesting part about this outside of maybe a, a major trade that I, I can't even speculate on right now until we kind of understand they're waiting to see where this lottery falls first, right? That's step one for this entire offseason, maybe even before they extend Steph. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, right now they're slotted sixth based on record where Minnesota was. But depending on where that lottery falls, I mean, that that pick could be real important moving forward if they wanted to make a trade with a, another team. What are the ramifications that they wouldn't have that pick? What are the conditions for that pick, Scott? So it's top three protected. So say Minnesota lands in one, two, or three when the lottery hits, uh, Minnesota would get it. Otherwise, if it's a four and below, Golden State gets it. And and this draft, they're saying there are five legit players. Right, so they need to be lands, four or five. That's right. They need to be four and five. Otherwise, what? <laughs> otherwise it's just a pick because it's probably not tradable um, at that point well depending on what their scouting department is saying you know i i could see golden state certainly taking a pick if they're in six seven eight you know yeah. it, because the league wants you to rebuild through the draft to a certain extent so the fact that they had wiseman if he can come back and, and with that experience and fit in better and then you get clay back and then you get you know even if it is a top 10 pick you know they they're sort of restocking behind clay and behind mm -hmm. steph depending on if they extend steph or steph moves on draymond we've seen where he has been you know Beginning of the year, he was struggling. He sort of came on, but is still, you know, a, a shell of himself for the most part from years past. So th this could be a way for them to sort of restock through the draft and bring in if their scouting department feels that these are guys that are dead on. Because keep in mind, they also have their uh, the 14th pick as well right now, right. according. So th they, they have two in the top 15, if you want to look at it that way. Right, which isn't going to get him to the championship, you know. But you're no, right; but, it is a, it is a it is a four or five year solution to at least yes. restocking the pool. That was kind of going to be my last question: is knowing what we know now about this team, and I don't think too much is going to change. I really don't. I mean, Ubre out, but yeah, I think Wiggins definitely took over the bigger role anyway on this team, and maybe even Poole to some degree. We saw what Steph just did. Is getting Clay back going to be enough of a boost? to put these guys in real West contention, maybe not top three, but middle of the pack at least, is that going to be enough? Or is there, is this a team that's going to have to go and be a bit of a buyer this off season via the trade? No, I, I think with a combination of clay coming back and if you are able to draft, like we just talked about, you know, two players or you trade one and you at least get a top 10 pick, you're filling in, with some legit guys that could fill in at the back end of the roster and learn, because right now they, they have a lot of minimum salary guys that 
that they may like, but they could potentially move on from that are non-guaranteed. So I think just bringing Clay back with what is on the roster right now, um, mm-hmm. I, I think we're okay. Yeah, probably a decent starting point, although you don't want to mess with, with Steph's long-term prowess here. Okay, let's switch gears to the NHL playoffs. Admittedly, haven't seen too much of it with my own eyes, but I'm certainly keeping up with it, um, you know, in the publications and, and on Twitter and whatnot. So I, I'm aware of what just happened with the Boston-Washington series, which <laughs> that sounded like a heck of a first round for sure. Similar situation, kind of a smooth transition from Steph to Ovechkin. We talked about it a little bit last week, Scott. Ovechkin's now an expired contract. What are you hearing? What are you thinking? Because it's Ovechkin and basically every goaltender is, is what, <laughs> yeah, is what the Washington Capitals have to deal with this offseason. That's, that's not an easy task to fill. That's not an easy task. So what's the game plan here? Are they going to try to tread water? Get, put Ovechkin on, on one-year deals from here out, you think? Or is it going to be more of a long-term situation? I can't imagine he leaves. No, I can't either. You know, I, I think he finishes his career here in yeah. Washington. I can't see him in another jersey. And as close as he's getting with all-time goal scoring, you know, I, I could see them just doing one year or maybe a one, two-year deal, so, so short-term deal to see where it gets them. He's still productive, you know. I, I haven't heard one way or another. I know the one day I was listening, they were talking about how the the value of Ovechkin's contract because it was a 13-year deal, but the production that they got out of that sure. 13 years, how it just doesn't happen in most cases to get that production for that long of a time. I, I think they make him a lifetime Washington capital and, and go from there, whether that's on a one-year, a two-year well, I do not. Uh, he's I don't got seven hundred thirty goals, Scott. He's not going to catch Gretzky's eight ninety four. We've talked about this, but Gordy Howe's eight oh one. You know, seventy away. Realistically, how many years is that for him? Because isn't that isn't that what the contract should be built around at this point? I understand winning's part of it, it sh- but but it should having a veteran under contract is part of winning. Let's just be honest here. He hasn't declined enough to where he he's not contract worthy. So is that a three year contract? 70 goals. Is that safe? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, if 25 goals a, a season, yeah. 75 total. Yeah, I, I could see that happening. Do you have or, to go 10 million a year in this guy? <laughs> it's a really weird. We, we talked about this a little bit last week with Kobe Bryant and yes. some of those, the, some of those hall of famers who got, Definitely more than they bargained for, more than they were, you know, valued at production-wise, at the twilight of their career. That's where Ovechkin is, except for he's still scoring 30, 40, 50 goals. So how do you give this guy six right now? You know, how do you go down from the eight and a half he got over 13 years here? You, I guess if you're the team, you go to him and say, it's not a great look, but we know the NHL is a is really restrictive with their their cap there's never enough space and and you may can you take a hometown discount to allow us to get a goalie that we need or get some other players to get deeper into the playoffs to have that chance at one more uh stanley cup championship that's a hard pill to swallow it's real tough look he's been making 10 million a year salary though for the last eight seasons 
I just can't see him going off of that, Scott. They've been making it work for eight seasons at $10 million, and I realize the cap is slightly below that, but I think a one for 10 is going to happen or a three for 30 or a two for 20, something in that range. And uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't know that you mess with this one is what I'm saying. It's too historic. It's too long-term. It's too, it's too attached to this franchise. It's like a, it's an in-between Kobe Bryant kind of situation where you just yeah. don't, you can't screw around with this one too much. He's still putting butts in seats and doing all the things that you want from a franchise player. So something to watch for sure. I, I do think the goaltender issue is, even more dire than getting a Vetchkin under contract. And, and honestly, that might be something that a Vetchkin waits on to see where things progress in that regard as well, because it's not going to be fun for him to finish out his career, not winning, even if that record is still hanging out there for him. So also no first round pick. So, you know, this is not a, it's not the year for them to be making a splash too much anywhere at this point. Well, and we, and we talk about the, the goal, the goals for Ovechkin and he's been, the receiver of unfortunate events, you know, lock. He was part of a lockout. He had the shortened season last season. He had the shortened season this season. A little bit of an injury this year, which is rare for him. Right. But had he had full seasons, I I, I would love to know where he would have been with that all-time goal scoring. How close would he have been had he had three actual full seasons? That would have been really interesting. Yeah, Gretzky's – it could have been in the conversation at least. It's certainly not anymore, but it could have been in the conversation. So he's he's a week over 35 years old. So I don't think we should should crystallize him just yet. I do think there's there's something left in the tank. Um, You know, can he make it 30, 30 goals a year here? I don't know. We'll see. It depends on what they think, of course. Um, the other team that got knocked out was the St. Louis Blues. A couple years ago, went from worst to first. Pretty solid team. You know, they've only got a couple of second and third liners kind of uh, ready to hit the open market if if it gets that far. They've made a couple of trades, so there's a couple of mid-round picks taken away from them in 2021 as well. Uh, this is just a stable team that got beat. You know, they got run over by by maybe the best team in hockey in Colorado, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I wouldn't expect too much here. You? No, I would. If anything, maybe they go make a splash because there's some there's some young talent, uh, you know, air quotes sitting here in Buffalo, by the way, that I think Yo, every yeah, team I in the league are, is going to be looking at to make a, a quick, dirty upgrade. So I, I do think this is a team that could make a push and add a piece to take themselves closer to the Colorado situation. But they're a stable team. They're They're not going backwards by any means. No, I don't think so. But there is a new a new caveat this year where there's an expansion. That's right. So teams are going to have to be careful with who they want to protect and not protect and, and, and go from there because with the Seattle expansion, I I, I believe the rules are the same as when the Vegas Knights came in um, or or pretty close to the same. So, you know, (laughs) you know, that that's going to be interesting to see with these teams, you know, I, I, I can't remember with Ovechkin being a free agent, if, he is open to be whatever, or they have to still protect him or how that would work. But, you know, some of these teams are going to have to be careful what guys that they protect and which ones they don't, because they be maybe on a different team for the expansion reason, as opposed to just a different trade or free agency purposes. Real quick, because it's always fascinating. We don't get it enough. I'm going to break it down for you real quick to finish off our segment here, Scott. The expansion draft is scheduled for July 21st, um, and that is the Seattle Kraken, of course. Seattle must choose at least 20 players who are under contract for the 2021-22 season. 
Um, there's an upper limit on that as well. Here's how it works. Teams can protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goalie, or eight skaters and one goalie. So you can be a little creative with it. But that's the max you can protect on your team. Anybody with a no-movement clause at the, at the time of that draft must be protected. They must be protected and will be counted. Anyone first year, second year in the league or unsigned draft picks will be exempt from the selection. So if you've got new rookies that you, uh, that you love you know, long-term on your franchise, you don't have to worry about those guys too much. They're pretty much exempt from this. Um, other than that, anybody under contract and has played at least 40 games, that's kind of the qualifying bar. And uh, that's it. If you played 40 games this prior season, and you're under contract for next year, you're pretty much open to it. So Seattle's going to have their pick. We saw what happened with the last one with Vegas. <laughs> yeah. And I, is that rule di- different? Because I thought it, when Vegas came in, it was if you were just three years and under, you were automatically protected or you know, is the 40 games new? It's a good question. You know? It's a good question. But anyone under contract who played 40 last year and at least 70 in the prior two. So, you know. Yeah. That's a pretty good chunk of, of the league, honestly. So you're gonna have you're gonna have some decent names. We're gonna have to do some shows specifically on just expansion holds and protections and things like that because this is a it's it's when fantasy becomes reality <laughs> in this league, and it's really crazy fun stuff. Well, in the fact that they're doing the same structure for a second time, it, oh, they, the NHL see... loved when Vegas won. They loved no. that quick win because, it, I mean, you're pumping so much money into the league directly through that new franchise. That, that's good for everybody. It is. But where I was going to go is with the conversation that we've been having with, you know, MLS soccer, baseball, yeah. with and in, in, to a certain extent football uh, with these expansions. I bet you these leagues are really watching this expansion rules very closely. Having seen what happened with Vegas, if the Seattle Kraken end up becoming somewhat the same, making the playoffs in the first mm-hmm. season and, and getting that influx of cash because you're not just having a bottom dweller. You know, I bet you a lot of franchise or a lot of franchises slash leagues are really paying close attention to the structure. Yeah. I, I know major league baseball is really thinking about it um, just for the revenue purposes because of what it will bring to the new cities. But yeah, this is going to win. I mean, Seattle's a great sports town. This is going to be a win. And I think that there's plenty of players out there either rostered or available via the draft right now that can really put push this team at least into contention quickly. Maybe not year one like Vegas, but uh, it's just, it's built for them to win. It's kind of a, like I said, a fantasy becomes reality situation. So we'll, uh, we'll certainly bring that up in the coming months here as that's a July 21st expansion draft. Anything else from the weekend quickly before I get you out of here, Scott, NBA wise, how about that Madison square garden experience? Oh, that was uh-huh. awesome. I, my, my question to you is ha, how many devices or screens did you have yeah. going at the same time this weekend? Yeah. Because that's I, where I we had, are, aren't we? I, I had three and four going at the same time. I had split screen on the TV, my phone, my iPad, you know, I was all over trying to catch as much as possible, <laughs> whether it was golf, racing, basketball, soccer, whether it was, uh, you know, I, I caught some of the women's soccer highlights on Twitter, some of the women's basketball on, on Twitter. Um, Great to see WNBA just, getting an ESPN midday coverage. Love yeah. to see that. Great game too. Awesome finish. It, it was all over the place. 
Yeah, it was. I mean, it you was. had F1, you had Indy, you had everything yesterday, literally everything you wanted yesterday. So, and most of it didn't disappoint. Um, I guess real quick, Phoenix making you feel good so far. Oh, yes, it did. When I, I was, uh, <laughs> I saw the Chris Paul injury and I was like, oh God. Yeah. And then when it happened to LeBron too, I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on right now? Yeah. But the fact that Phoenix held their own. Yeah, made you feel good. And not from the standpoint of that's who I picked to win it all, but from the fact that everyone had the Lakers, you know, written in to move on. And the fact that Phoenix showed up and shows that they are legit contenders and can compete. And well, let's, it's it's great to see. I know a lot of people are going to wake up today and bash the Lakers and bash Anthony Davis and whatever the heck that was yesterday. But let's be fair to the situation. (laughs) Number eight, Memphis beats number one, Utah, number five, Dallas beats number four, Clippers, number six, Portland beats number three, Denver, number, number two, Phoenix covers number two, Brooklyn covers the bucks cover. Number five, Atlanta beats number four, the New York, New York. And of course the Sixers cover half of these matchups flipped, flipped backwards this weekend. So it's not just the Lakers, you know, whether it was just a slow start, just fluky, you know, maybe the fans back with the home crowd that, that maybe that got some situations, you know, a little bit messed up, but game one was fun. There's no question about it. We'll see if things kind of, you know, you know, manage back into proper order here over the next couple of days. But my quick takeaways, just to get off the NBA quickly here, I told you Dallas was for real. And I told you the Clippers were going to look like this. They just, they, the Clippers just don't look like a team that can be prepared for, for a seven game series. They'll have Mm -hmm. one or two great games. And to be fair, that's probably what Dallas is too, but to have the Clippers be as favorite as they were in that West, that was a disaster for me. I would never have put a dollar on that bet because Dallas can, Dallas can be the Clippers any day of the week. They're just very similar situations. Uh, And Brooklyn, yikes. Yeah. Brooklyn's yikes. yikes. That's my other takeaway yeah. there. But Philly, yeah. Philly can play ball. What do you think? I think a lot of young stars are starting to show up. Did you did you think, think that about Embiid? Did you see the Philly game at all? Yeah, I did. Okay, you and I have talked body language with Joel Embiid quite a lot, especially this year and how he looks like he's bored or miserable or hates basketball or whatever. This is the very, very first time where I saw him not only get invested in terms of his body language, but get into it, get the crowd pumped up. You saw him yes. be himself motivate. Uh, this is the guy I looked at that guy and I said, at the end of this, of this playoffs, we could have a, a playoffs MVP out of Joel Embiid, which by the way, shouldn't he be? He's in the number one seat of, of a conference. Like that's exactly what those kind of players should be. So it shouldn't surprise people, but it would, it, it would surprise people if Philadelphia wins this thing and he's the reason why, and it shouldn't. He looked like the kind of guy that that he needed to be, uh, maybe eight years ago now, right? Jeez. Uh, anything yeah. else? Any other takeaways? No, no. It, it, sort of a changing on the guard. I mean, we saw yeah. uh, Trey Young take over, Luca take over, John Morant has stepped up and is starting to take over and make a real name for himself. You're right. The kids all played. You're right, Scott. DeAndre Ayton stepped up, Booker stepped up when Paul went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have we're gonna have to have a show. It was something I thought of. We're gonna have to have a, a talk about this NBA 2018 draft because there are 
a handful of two handfuls of guys that are going to be extension eligible this offseason. And I, I want to run down the list and just say, but those, but those won't be- kick in until 2023, correct? Right. So you're going to have these, this or 20. Yeah. 2023. Right. Which means you're going to have this incredible rookie class class who are all going to be max eligible players banking on that 2023 cap explosion. Massive contracts for these kids. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking the, the Luca conversation, yeah. Trey young, Aiton. Uh, yeah. It's, Super maxes sorry, will be well be, over 200. This is going to be the 2022 season, right? Because they're, this will be, they're going into their fourth season next year, but we're, we're talking legit players that I, I looked real quick. The 2018 rookie class had one rookie max extension. Wow. 2019 had three rookie max extensions. And then tw- last year had four rookie max extensions. Now there are, were other rookie extensions that were in there, but the rookie max extension has gone up. I think we're going to potentially surpass that four from last year with this class. And so we're going to have to have a, a deep conversation yeah. on that. One. Wow. So maybe five rookie rookie maxes at 210, 215. Oh, I, I think we could potentially be at six, maybe seven. Okay. That's a lot of enchiladas. All right. Good stuff, Scott. Thanks. Yep. Have a good one. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription. And to Morgan Stanley, global sports and entertainment, empowering and financially aiding prospective and current NBA and NFL draft prospects before and after the process. Visit morganstanley.com slash GSE for more information today. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast.